0: also our sermon text from John 4. Listen to the gospel of God. And at this point, his disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman, yet no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore, the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do The will of him who sent me. And to finish his work. Do you not say. There are still four months. And then comes the harvest. Behold I say to you. Lift up your eyes. And look at the fields. For they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps. Receives wages. And gathers fruit. For eternal life. That both he who sows. And he who reaps. May rejoice together. For in this. The saying is true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored, labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labors. And many of the Samaritans of the city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days and many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the savior of the world. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, help us to consider your word, to embrace the truths in it, to stand on it firm in the faith that you have given us and to go forth doing it in Jesus name. Amen. Please be seated. You'll notice the handout I gave you has two sides. For those of you who like to fill in the blanks, I kept it the same. For those of you who don't like filling in the blanks but would like to use it for notes and to follow, I just went ahead and gave you the answers on the back side so you can use whichever one you want. They're the same. They should be exactly the same. Also, a quick note about the small group homework for those of you in a small group. The, again, the email with the questions will go out, and it'll be helpful for you to read through that and fill it out before you come to your small group. It's a little less extensive than last week, got some feedback, maybe it's a little aggressive. So we'll, it's a little shorter this time, but it'll be helpful for you and for the group if you fill that out, go through it, think about it for 30 minutes to 45 minutes before, before you come to your small group. The main point of our passage this morning is the confession or the declaration that appears at the very end of verse 42. This one is indeed the Christ, the savior of the world. That's an amazing, monumental confession. John has already told us several times and in several ways that Jesus came into the world, John one nine says that the true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. John one twenty nine, John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John three, sixteen and seventeen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world Might be saved through him. The world is in need of salvation. Every person who has ever been born. From Adam to now. Is in need of salvation. Everyone needs a savior. Everyone needs to be saved. From sin's guilt. And sin's grip. The proclamation of the Samaritans from Sychar in verse 42, Gentiles, mind you, is that Jesus Christ is the world's savior. And he is your savior if you believe in him, if you trust in him, if you follow him. Jesus is the one and he is the only one who can save you from your iniquities. Who can save you from sin's penalty and sin's power. From sin's guilt and sin's grip over you. John 4, 27-42 is about two things at least. It's about the salvation that Christ accomplishes. And it's about the food that Christ consumes. And Those are the two main points in your outline. As well the salvation that Christ accomplishes the food that Christ consumes in the first part of this passage and then the last part of this passage are about that first point the salvation that Christ accomplishes. So in verses twenty seven to thirty and then in verses thirty nine to forty two. At the end we see that Christ is the savior of the Samaritan woman Christ is the savior of the Samaritan city and Finally, the climax of the passage is that Christ is the savior of the whole world. We see the progression here in this story. Now, before we get into the passage, we need to back up and remember where we are in the story because John 4 is just one long story. We've taken a handful of weeks to get through it. At the beginning of John 4, Jesus leaves Judea and he heads north. Judea in the south, north to Galilee. But on the way, he has to stop at a well in Sychar of Samaria to get a drink. But more importantly, to meet a Samaritan woman. And what's interesting, we never see Jesus getting his drink. We only see him accomplishing his main purpose in going there, which was to engage this woman and to save her soul. Jesus sends his disciples into the nearby village and, to get some food. And then he sits down at the well. He waits for the woman. She comes at noon. The sixth hour of the day it says. Which is not typically when the women would go. To get the water at the well. They usually did it at the beginning of the day. Or at the end of the day when it was cooler. They never did it during the middle of the day. Because it's it's too hot. So it's irregular that we see this woman drawing water. At noon, and and we're told that it happened at noon. And the original readers would have known that's irregular. So, we probably need to draw a conclusion from it. It appears that this woman is avoiding the regular times because she's avoiding other people, especially the other women who come at the beginning and end of the day. Since she is a sinner, an outcast, she was a scorned woman who had been married. Five times she was living with the man who was a man who was not her husband. So she was wicked and shameful, looked down upon and she had isolated herself, no doubt. She went to, to the well at high noon to make sure she would be alone. and the last person that she expected to meet there was God. She was expecting the Messiah to come. She had the same sorts of expectations and anticipation that others had. She was not expecting to have a personal encounter with him today. Nevertheless, in her loneliness and in her isolation, even in the midst of her attempt to isolate herself, she comes to Jacob's well at high noon and encounters Jesus the Christ And they're alone. And in this conversation, Jesus models for us how to engage people who are ignorant of the gospel and indifferent to the gospel. How does Jesus begin? He begins in verse 10 by telling her about the grace of God, the gift of God, he calls it. He begins by telling her in verses 13 and 14 about the living water and the everlasting life that God has for her if only she does what? Ask for it. If you knew, you'd ask for it. I'd give it to you. That's all it would take. And that's a great way to launch into a conversation with someone about the gospel. Let me tell you what God is willing to give to you. If you just ask for it. If you just receive it. He's willing to give you water. That will become in you a A fountain springing up into everlasting life. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to earn it. You just humble yourself before the living God, the one who created you, and ask for it. And he'll be your savior. But the woman's not ready to ask for it because she doesn't see her need for it when he tells her this. She's not ready to acknowledge her sin and her need for a savior. So in verses 16 to 18... Jesus confronts her with her sin by exposing her sordid past. She's shocked by this. And she concludes in verse 19, you must be a prophet. You you know everything about me. But she's still not ready to confess Jesus as the Christ, it seems. She still doesn't know who she's talking to. She's still looking for the Christ. Even though he's right there in front of her. She's like so many unbelievers today who acknowledge that Jesus was a great teacher, a great prophet, even, but who fail to acknowledge that he is the Messiah and that he is God in the flesh. Many Muslims consider Jesus a wise man and a prophet, but they don't trust in Jesus as their Savior, their Lord. And their God. Which is why we cannot say we worship the same God. They do not worship Jesus who is our God. Then in verse 20. The woman tries to steer the conversation. Toward the old debate. On worship. That existed between the Samaritans. The the half breeds. The. The people who had intermarried with Gentiles. And the Jews. There was an old debate. Where should we worship? In Samaria? Mount Gerizim? Or in Jerusalem? Mount Zion? The temple there. She uses this as an opportunity. To uh, take the conversation in a different direction. So she raises this issue. Hoping to engage in this debate. Jesus uses it as an opportunity. To tell her. That. True worshipers will worship neither on Mount Gerizim, as the Samaritans say, nor in Jerusalem, as the Jews say. True worshipers will worship in spirit and truth, which means in the Holy Spirit and in Jesus Christ, who is the truth incarnate, the truth made flesh, the truth become human. Verse 25, the woman still doesn't know who she's talking to, she says, I know the Messiah is coming, who's called the Christ. And when he comes, he'll tell us all things. And then Jesus said to her at the end of that passage, I am he who speaks to you, or more literally, I am who speaks to you. Jesus identifies himself not only as the Messiah to come, but as the great I am. We get the impression from the narrative that when Jesus said, I am, I am who speaks to you, she converted. In John 18, when Jesus uttered the phrase, I am to the soldiers, you remember, these words had great power over everyone in his presence. In in John 18, Judas is bringing the troops to Jesus to betray him, and Jesus says, who who are you seeking? Who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And in response, he says, I am he. And that's literally, I am. And then John 18, 6 says, now when Jesus said, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Because the words, I am, have power. They sent these people back in John 18. It may be that the words, I am, had a similar similarly powerful effect on the woman in john 4 because after jesus said says this to her she leaves her water pot at the well in a hurry goes to the village to tell everyone about jesus whom who she now believes is the christ so she converted in response to those words. Verse 27. Now we're getting to our passage this morning. Verse 27 says that when the disciples returned. They marveled that Jesus was talking with this woman. Why was their rabbi. A Jewish man and a rabbi. Talking with this Samaritan woman. Not just a Samaritan but a woman. This was out of bounds. But 20, verse 27 says that none of the disciples actually said what was on their minds they didn't ask Jesus what are you seeking to accomplish here that's what that first question means what are you trying to do or why are you talking with her with her a woman instead they kept silent it's not that they didn't have the questions it's just they held their tongues and why did they do this? And why does John tell us that, that he was there? John was there. He knew it was on his mind. They might have even talked about it amongst themselves. And he knew it was on more than just his mind. Why does he tell us this? It appears that they're learning to trust Jesus. And John is admitting here, you could say, the author of the gospel is, this, these were our questions, but they were clearly the wrong questions. And we see them. Learning to trust Jesus, becoming a disciple of Jesus is all about learning to trust him, his wisdom over your own. If You've been a believer in Jesus very long. You know that Jesus does not always make sense to you. He doesn't always do things your way, the way you would do it. Even his inspired word, the Bible, doesn't always make sense to you or to me. The way Jesus is ordering history, the way he has orchestrated your life often leaves you with more questions than answers, especially during some seasons of life. Lord, why did you do it that way? Lord, why didn't you do it this way? Jesus, what are you seeking to accomplish here? Why did you withhold your blessings from me and bless someone else? Who is less faithful or unfaithful. How could you bless that person and not me? Why did you give me this life? Why did you give me these parents? Why did you give me this spouse? And on and on the questions can go. But as you mature in Christ. You learn to trust him. You learn to entrust yourself to God. And his wisdom. And his sovereign. Preordained. Plan. And your questions don't go away, but they do become fewer. You stop questioning God as much, or at least in the same kind of way, because you're learning to trust the Lord with all of your heart and to lean not on your own understanding. Because many of those questions stem from our understanding, which is not always gods but when you give all of your heart when you trust in the lord with all of your heart proverbs 3 5 and when you lean not on your own understandings you will have fewer questions you'll question god less one of the marks of a mature believer is complete trust in jesus and one of the marks of an immature believer is endless questions Why this? Why that? Why did God do it this way? Why can't he have done it that way? It's not always wrong to ask questions about God. We see in the scriptures, especially in the Psalms, that there are faithful ways to go to God with our hard questions. You can do that in a way that's not rebellious, that is submissive. So it's not wrong to ask questions about God. Or to ask questions to God. But the mature Christian will realize that oftentimes it's not time to question what God is doing. We simply cast our cares on Him and rest in His perfect righteousness, knowing that He controls everything and that His wisdom is unsearchable. We're not going to find all the answers because they're unsearchable. So my prejudices, my ideas, my intuition, my sensibilities, my sense of how things ought to be or go, none of those things are all that important at the end of the day. The most important thing for me to remember is when it comes to my ideas, my sensibilities, is that I must submit them. To God, and I must submit them to those God has put over me. Verse 28 says that the woman was so excited to go into the city to tell the people about Christ that she left her water pot behind at the well. And this illustrates the depth of her response to Christ's call on her life. She had finally found. The living water that she had been looking for all of her life. She'd finally come to know that gift of God that Jesus was talking about and who it was who was offering the water. Verse 30 the response from the townspeople is to come and meet this man that the woman is telling everyone about. It's interesting that they're listening to and believing and responding to this woman. God is working in her life and her testimony is powerful because she's not the first person that the people in this village were going to trust and respond to. Verse 39 says that many of the people in that city believed on the basis of this new convert's testimony. In verse 40, the Samaritans from that town asked Jesus to stay. So he did. He stayed for a couple of days. And in verse 41 says that many more believed because of Jesus' own word. And this is what we want, isn't it? We want people hearing and believing God's word. The words of Christ. God may and often does use our testimony. Your testimony. My testimony. To bring someone to faith in Christ. But it's always important that at some point they move. From your testimony to the word of the Lord himself. And that word is contained in the pages of scripture. Parents, you don't want your children to rely on your words and your instruction alone. Your goal is not for them to relate to God through you, through your story, through your words to them about God. God will use that, He uses those things to build up Your children's faith, one another's faith. But the goal is for your children to know Jesus himself or herself. The goal for each child, for each disciple of Christ, for each one of us here, is a personal relationship, a personal encounter with Jesus that is based on his word and on the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in our hearts the goal is for each one of us to hear personally with our spiritual ears the voice of the good shepherd jesus says in john 10:27 my sheep hear my voice and i know them and they follow me the people in the city of sychar of samaria heard the good shepherd's voice And the good shepherd. Became their savior. Verse 42. Then they said to the woman. Now we believe. Not because of what you said. For we ourselves have heard him. And we know that this is indeed. The Christ. The savior of the world. And these people heard Jesus speak. And they heard the word of the Lord. The very words of God. It caused them. To know Him and to confess Him as their Christ and their Savior. That's what the Word of God does to His sheep. It converts them. It revives them. It produces faith in them. Is the Word of God producing faith in you? Does hearing Christ's Word cause you to know Jesus Better and to confess him as Christ and Savior. Do you hear the voice of the good shepherd when scripture is read and preached? Is this time right now? Life giving to you or is it boring? You can't wait till it's over. Would you rather be doing something else right now? Or can you hear the Savior speaking to you through his word? And it brings you delight. The declaration at the end of verse 42 is. Monumental. It's significant. Because it's made by non Jews. Or at least only half breed Jews at best. Jesus didn't come just to save Israel. He came as the Christ and the savior of the whole world. And this declaration, this confession, this proclamation that they make, these Samaritans, at the end of verse 42, it has two emphases. The first emphasis is that Jesus is the Savior of people from every tongue, every tribe, every nation, every people group. He's the Savior of the world in that He will save people from every part of the world, He's everyone's Savior. That's what John, 1 John 2.2 2 means when it says he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Or he is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. But the declaration that Jesus is the Savior of the world also has a second emphasis. It means that there is only one Savior of the whole world. Christ is the world's only Savior many people from all parts of the world will be saved are being saved but they will be saved by only one savior not multiple saviors jesus is the only savior the world has jesus is the whole world's savior and he's the world's only savior those are the two emphases the two meanings there john 14:6 draws out this second emphasis or meaning I am the way the truth and the life no man comes to the father except by me or here acts 4 verse 12 there is no salvation in any other name for there is no name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved or 1st corinthians 16:22 if anyone does not love the lord jesus christ let him be damned for the rest of the sermon I want to move the focus to verses 31 to 38, which is the second point on your outline. And we're going to home in on verses 31 to 34. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore, the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? Verse 34, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Jesus is not suggesting here that when you become really, really spiritual, you will be able to go without physical food. And he's not rebuking his disciples for suggesting that. That he eat. Jesus needed to eat and drink. He was fully human. You need to eat and drink. Physical sustenance. What Jesus is saying though. Is that we should have such a passion for God's will. And God's work. That maybe we tend to forget about our belly. And lose sight of our physical welfare. At times. The hunger and thirst of your soul for righteousness must be more of a driving force in your life than the hunger and thirst of your bodies for meat and drink. Which one of those is the driving force in your life, the physical hunger and thirst or the spiritual hunger and thirst? Which do you plan around more? Think about more. Do you hunger to do God's will in your life? Do you hunger to participate in the work of God? Christ lived to do God's will. It was his greatest joy, his greatest thrill. He lived out Psalm 40 verse 8. To do your will, oh my God. Is my desire. If, you, if there's one desire. That he had. And only one. It was to do God's will. That's the desire. That drove him. And that was Christ's prayer. In Psalm 40 verse 8. To do your will oh my God. Is my desire above everything else. Jesus lived to do God's will. Doing God's will. Was the key to his spiritual. Sustenance. And it must be the key to yours. This is not just for Jesus. You can believe all the right things about God. You can have tender feelings toward God. You can even read your Bible and pray to God every day. But if you do not surrender your will to the will of God, then you are depriving your soul of the richest and most satisfying food. That God has on offer. And Say that again. If you. Do not surrender your will. To the will of God. Then you are depriving your soul. Of the richest. And most satisfying food. That God has. On offer. Until your will is right. Nothing is right. Until your will is submissive to God and ready to do God's will, you will always be starving yourself. You'll always be cutting yourself off from the spiritual feast that God is willing to feed you. If it's more about your will than God's will, then you are malnourished. Sometimes people come and talk to me about a major life decision that they are facing. And they they rightly want to know what God's will is because they want to do God's will. They want to know whether God's will is for them to pursue this person in a courtship or to take a certain job or to move to a certain town. And what I found is that when people are already doing the things that God has revealed in his word, when they're already obeying God's known will, which is revealed in Scripture, these people eventually get clarity on all the other things as well. When you're seeking first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, God adds the other things as well. And when these people are not seeking God's will, The will that he's already revealed to them, if their life's not already about the will of God, that's very clear to them, then oftentimes confusion abounds and a lack of peace and clarity. One of life's first principles is to do God's revealed will to obey what you already know to be what God wants you to do. God's revealed will is for you to be filled by his Holy Spirit. God has already revealed to you in his word that he wants you to be holy and thankful and prayerful and peaceable and submissive to authority and poor in spirit. And we could go on and on. Unfortunately, many Christians seek God's direction in their lives. Without doing what he has already made clear to them. They ask God to bless them and guide them and show them his will. in this major life decision that's unclear to them. But they are not conforming already to the will of God that he has revealed in his word. When there is no authentic submission to what God has already shown you. What's already clear, you cannot expect all the other things in your life to be added unto you, as God says he will do. He only adds all of those things unto you when you are seeking his will and doing his will. Instead, you can expect to be hungry and dissatisfied. When you're not already conforming to his revealed will. Because your soul is starving. It's not partaking of the divine food. The divine food that Jesus lived on. Jesus also says that he must finish God's work. Jesus is anticipating here. His work on the cross. That's the culmination of this work. The same word is used when Jesus cried out from the cross, it is finished. He's finishing, He came to finish God's work, and then he says on the cross, it is finished. Same word. Jesus finished God's work of salvation on the cross. And that work will always be fully finished. On the cross, Jesus became the savior of the world, he became Your Savior, our Savior. There's nothing that anyone or anything can add to or subtract from what our Savior accomplished when he died for us on the cross. And yet there is still work to be done. Not atoning work to be done. We can do nothing to atone our sins, but there is still work to be done. There are still crosses to take up. There are still souls to win for Christ. There's still work to be done in Christ's church and in Christ's kingdom. There are still afflictions to endure faithfully. And doing God's work should be our sustenance until we die. Until Jesus returns. So what is the secret to a satisfying, godly life the secret is your absolute submission to god's will there's nothing more joyful or more restful than knowing that you are obeying god there's nothing more peaceable than knowing that you are obeying god it's peaceable and peaceful And there's nothing more miserable than living outside of God's will. There's nothing more miserable than not doing what you know God is calling you to do. Christ had no greater joy than to do God's will. Hebrews 12.2 says that Jesus even endured the cross... For the joy that was set before him. When he was on the cross. He was filled with the joy of the Lord. That's only possible. When you have submitted your will. To God's will. So that doing God's will. Brings you joy. The father's will was for Christ to endure the cross. He made that clear. In the Garden of Gethsemane. Therefore, Christ endured the cross with joy. Once the Father made his will known to Jesus in the garden, Jesus knew at that point he knew of no greater joy than to take up his cross and obey his Father all the way to the point of death. What is your greatest joy? What are you feeding on? What is your food? Are you feasting on empty pleasures? Entertainment, food and drink in excess, worldly amusements, leisure, sexual pleasures. Or are you feasting on doing God's will and taking up your cross and following Christ? Is that your food? The most important food in your life, the food That you think about. That you look forward to. The only food that will last. The only food that will satisfy. Is doing God's will. And work. That must be your top priority. If you want to be a joyful. And peaceful. Follower. Of Christ. Jesus Christ is your savior. And Jesus Christ. Saved you. To conform to his will and to do the work of his kingdom. Let's ask God to help us do that. Father, thank you for calling us to be your kingdom of priests. Your kings and your priests. To do your will and to do your work in your kingdom. We confess that we need your help. We are asking for the living water that you've given us to overflow, to spring up in us unto everlasting life so that we can walk in your spirit, be filled with your spirit, produce the fruit of your spirit and do your will and participate in your work. In Jesus name. Amen.